Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Well, so relevant to both of those, this this idea that whenever there's a, a fundamental human drive or activity, something that, that we feel really strongly and is, has been a part of our species for a long time, you have to be really careful if you start monkeying around with it with technology. Mm. Right, because if there is a strong drive that has some sort of real evolutionary purpose, it's really powerful. Um, it has a there's a point to it, and so if you start manipulating it with some tool that someone you know a, a 22 year old came up with in some incubator somewhere, uh-huh. you might have problems, right? And so both solitude and the dating apps actually touches on that particular principle. Mm-hmm. So you know, with solitude, there's this we we have this this strong uh, drive for boredom, right? Boredom is really uncomfortable. And uh, that means something, right? I mean, we really don't like feeling bored. That means that there is an evolutionary importance to feeling bored mm-hmm. because we don't have strong things that make us feel really uncomfortable unless there's a really good reason to it. So what's the purpose of boredom? Well, it's supposed to uh, help motivate us to actually get over our natural state of energy conservation and actually invest the energy required to do things that in the long term are satisfying and meaningful. Because otherwise, we're, we're most animals try to conserve energy when they can because who knows when you're going to next eat. But humans need to also go out there and you know invent the wheel and build cities. And, and boredom drives us to do it because we want to conserve energy. We're lazy, but we also hate being bored. Um, so if you subvert that powerful human drive with, well, wait a second, I've got this little glowing rectangle. And it has all these algorithms behind it. And it can, it can kind of take care of that boredom in a flash. <laughs> right. And so I never actually have to feel bored. I never have to have it drive me to do anything. You feel like, oh, I'm solving this problem, but you're messing with this drive. And what happens is you don't go out and invent the wheel and you don't build cities. Uh, and you end up much <laughs> impoverished. Just like, oh, I feel hungry. That's a huge yeah. drive. That means I need to go you know, eat. And you're like, well, I have a candy bar. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Cal, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. 
Of course, always my pleasure. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Uh, I think the fact that you know this is probably your third appearance on the Unmistakable Creative says a lot about the impact that you've had on, on me, my thinking, and and our audience as well. Um, and I think you know I left our conversation about digital minimalism feeling like okay, wait a minute, I still have so much more to ask you. And in that time, I mean, so much has happened. Like I've followed all of the posts that you've been putting on your blog, but before we get into all of that, I think I want to start with a question that is very relevant to. Um, what we're going to talk about today. And that is, uh, what birth order were you and what impact did your birth order have on your life? And, and what impact has had, has this whole perspective that you have, uh, had on your relationship with your sibling? Cause I, there's only like one reference to her in your book. And I remember that. I have, well, I have three siblings. Ah, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm okay. the, uh, the second, the okay. second of four. All right. Um, uh, the impact, I, I think, uh, a lot more about, um, being in touch with close family. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the things that, that has disappeared for a lot of people pretty quickly that I, I used to spend a lot of time on the phone. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people with social media in particular, it's, you know what, I commented on, you know, my brother's Instagram or something. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> we're in, we're in touch. And, you know, I've been, I don't have that issue because I don't use social media, but I have a, a, a young family and <laughs> I'm pretty busy. And I think this is one of the big things that came out of working on the, the most recent book. Mm-hmm. was oh that's like exercise yeah making the time uh, uh sacrificing that comes up a lot in the literature on social satisfaction mm-hmm. it's not just contact it's it's contact that requires a non-trivial sacrifice on your part that's what gives people satisfaction i had to put aside time this uh-huh. was not trivial yeah. this was i prioritized this over other things your mind takes that seriously mm-hmm. okay this is this is something that matters and so that's something yeah. I've, I've thought a lot about more recently yeah. Do your siblings use social media? Um, I think, well, to various degrees, I think. Okay. I, you know, I don't really know. People ask me this a lot about my wife, too. <laughs> I, I'm actually not quite sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think they probably do to, to some degree, um, but uh, I'm not, I'm blissfully unaware. I guess we'll put yeah. it that way. I, I wonder, do, do, like, do they, do they, you ever get any pushback on this from either your wife or your siblings? Like, cause I, I know we've talked about, you know, how you've thought about raising kids and all of that in the past. I think when we did the class for creative live and, uh, all of that. So I, I cause I, I'd been wondering about this. I was like, where do you get pushback from people in your life, particularly the people that are close to you? Well, yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't get pushback about not being on social media just because people have learned that, uh, you're going to trigger a 20 minute lecture. <laughs> the depredations of the, I've spent too much, I've spent too much time on the other side of that one. That's, right. that's, uh, it's like bothering a vegan about meat or something. It's just not worth it. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think where I, the, the place where I sometimes get pushed back from people I know is I'm not super reachable. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, the way I, the way I work, I, I prioritize attention. I'm often without my phone. I'm just, I'm not, I just go long periods. I'm not reachable. I don't have my phone. My phone's not around. And so, uh-huh. uh, that comes up every once in a while. Hold on. I was trying to get in touch with you and I couldn't. Um, <laughs> right. but on the other hand, people kind of expect it. So I'm not a huge presence on, let's say the family and friends text chains just yeah. because, you know, the way I work, it's like either I'm, I'm, I'm working hardcore on what I plan to work on or I'm completely not working. And I don't uh-huh. have a mode that's in between. We're like, well, I'm kind of yeah. just, I'm going through the day. I'm getting some things done. I'm also, I'm also communicating. I'm also doing that. To, to, to me, that, that's a misallocation of cognitive resources. So I, I, right. I'm all in, but I'm all done, which means I can be kind of hard to reach. 
Yeah, I, I can relate. It's funny because we, we have a cousin's WhatsApp group and I'm like, wow, I'm the asshole in this group because like, I don't participate at all. Uh, you know, like because one cousin has had a baby recently. So we get pictures of his baby and my, my parents right now are in Scotland. So we have, you know, a WhatsApp group for my, uh, you know, like my brother-in-law's family and my parents, like, you know, their last name is Banerjee and we're Rouse. So they created the Banner Rouse WhatsApp group. <laughs> and I remember the first few days where, when this, you know, WhatsApp group got created, I was like, holy shit, you guys need to get a life. <laughs> like, uh, but it, it's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, of course they're all taking pictures and sending pictures of the various places that they're at. And I, I realized, like, I looked at the sort of ratio of my responses to people's, uh, you know, post in these book versus everybody else. And I'm like, wow, I, I send one reply every few weeks. So like, and my parents get irritated just like you do. Like sometimes I'll turn off the phone after eight o'clock at night and my parents think something horrible has happened. Yeah. Well, they'll learn. <laughs> that's, what I, yeah. that's, that's what I've learned. People, people learn. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but the whole thing is what counterbalances that yeah. is longer form sacrifice inducing analog conversation. Mm -hmm. And once every two weeks, for example, a nice long phone call can swamp the benefits by far of daily interaction yeah. on a WhatsApp group. I mean, that is, that's become, that was clear in the literature. And I think people are definitely having that experience. My readers, when uh -huh. they tell me about their, their experiments with minimalism. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder with your siblings, I mean, you mentioned you're the second of four, so that means the rest of them are much younger than you are, right? Or, or what is the age gap? And, you know, when it comes to this perspective on technology, what impact do you think age gap has had on it? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's a good question because, you know, I'm born in 1982, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, it puts me, it puts me and my siblings were all pretty close in age. We're not that far apart. I mean, we, we're sort of right on that cusp. I mean, there was, uh, we didn't have phones or social media going into college, you know, uh, Facebook showed up at my college during my senior year, but I was one of the first schools to have it. So, uh, th that was a little bit early. So it's, it, you know, it's one of these things that we're on that side of the gap where it wasn't as fundamental. And mm -hmm. so for, I think for everyone in my family, there's been much more of a tenuous relationship. Yeah. Sometimes we use these things. Sometimes people don't. Yeah. Uh, I know my various siblings come off and on some of these networks, depending on what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's never, it's never had a strong foothold in my family. My parents never got involved with it. Hmm. Um, so it's never had a, it's never had a huge strong foothold in my family. Yeah. It's funny because I, I realized there were moments when things would cause tension in my family. It'd be like, Oh, you didn't put a picture of this thing on Facebook that somebody, my sister said, you know, gave you as a gift. And now it leads to this gigantic fight. I'm like, are you serious? Uh, and that was my, finally when I was like, okay, you know what, like I am going to reduce, you know, using this drastically. Uh, but I think, you know, as I was saying before we hit record here, uh, one of the things that really struck me most was talk, this conversation that I had with my parents when I was with them and their friends. And, you know, we sat down and were at dinner at the Olive Garden. And I'd been trying to find this link between human contact and happiness. And, you know, you just alluded to some of the studies on social contact and, and you know, um, satisfaction. And, you know, the the whole prior week to my sister's wedding, because of how much time we're all spending together, between the combination of that and not using social media for all of January, I, I just seen this sort of dramatic rise in my happiness. So, I'm, you know, I kind of was like, okay, maybe this is just, you know, causation, mixing up causation and correlation. But I started to think that, okay, wait a minute, human contact has got to be really vital to our, our well-being. And then I asked, you know, my parents, uh, how often do you guys see each other? Yeah, and their friends, and they said, "Oh, yeah, we see each other twice a week, and we talk on the phone every day." Um, in fact, if one of us doesn't call, we call the other one, saying, "Hey, why didn't you call today?" And I was like, "Holy shit! I don't think any of my friends I see twice a week." Yeah. 
And so I wonder, you know, one, why do you think that is? And how do we, how do we get away? How do we get back to you know, this semblance of community that seems to have like existed and still persists in all older generations? Well, I think the key observation is that our social brain doesn't know what to make of ASCII characters on a glowing glass screen, right? It, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't associate that with social connection. You know, it's, it's a completely different part of your brain that's reading, let's say, a comment on a social media post or a text message. That's going to the, the networks of your brain that do sort of reading and abstract comprehension. And it's almost un, completely unrelated to this highly evolved social network. That social network in our brain, what that requires is the rich stream you get in analog communication, the pacing of voice, the timber, is there limbic consonants. So if you're in person, little things about your body movements, how you're actually uh, framing yourself vis-a-vis the other person. It's an incredibly rich, high bandwidth stream that we have this powerful computer behind our ears that does nothing but thrive on that, uh, take that in, process it, figure it out, uh, integrate that into to your standing in the world and your community. It's very, very important. And that huge, important social computer doesn't know anything about computer characters. Uh, and so once you, once you have that recognition, it doesn't mean that like looking at text, what they would call, you know, purely linguistic, uh, interaction, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not yeah. scratching the itch. It's like looking at pictures of food mm-hmm. you know, versus <laughs> eating food, right? Like it's fine yeah. to watch the cooking shows, uh, but you're going to get hungry if, right. if you actually don't go out there and eat food. And then once you have that realization, like, oh, what I need to thrive socially is I need to make non-trivial sacrifices with close friends, family, and community with analog interaction. That's what I need. That's the nutriment. Yeah. Uh, and the other stuff, not that it's bad, but it's not going to scratch that itch. It just changes the way you think about your social life. And the fact that you were happier during that period where you're spending a lot more time with your family is completely predicted by the literature. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's like one of the, the most well-replicated, least surprising results from social psychology literature is that that type of analog sacrifice-inducing interaction with people that you're already close to is a massive source of satisfaction. And it's really just, it's not replicated yeah. by what we do on our screens. Well, it's funny you say that because I had, I have a really good friend who lives in Colorado and, you know, we talk on, on Slack every now and then. He's started this business as thriving, like doing really well. His wife is about to have a baby. And, you know, I came back from a speaking gig and I just sent him a text. And I said, hey, man, like I'm thinking of coming out next weekend. Uh, and I thought to myself, I'm like, okay, a lot of my friends are scattered all over the country, but I'm also in a situation where I can go visit any of them anytime I want. And I said, look, I'm like, I could sit here attempting to go on like Bumble dates in San Diego, or I could come and spend a weekend with one of my best friends and play video games with him, uh, drink beer. And, and I was like, wow, I was like, that was $200 well spent. Uh, yes. You know, it just, it, it like, I see this link over and over. So, I mean, so now you've explained the science, you know, behind it. And I think we all understand that intellectually, like it's not news to any of us. Uh, yet our behavior doesn't necessarily change as a byproduct just of the knowledge. So what is the key to changing that behavior? Working backwards from intention, working backwards from value. I mean, mm-hmm. that that seems to be the magic bullet with these tech issues, is that the people who try to just throw tips at these issues or people who are just trying to eliminate what they think is negative. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, I spend too much time looking at X. That seems like it's bad for me. I'm going to try to spend less time, yeah. you know, looking at Instagram or whatever. That really doesn't stick very well. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, when you come to deeply appreciate what you want, and then you reframe your tech uses to support that, so you're you're, you're working to support a vision of a life well lived, that's much more powerful. Mm -hmm. And and so that's why, you know, in the the book, I was really insistent that 
people should take a break for 30 days, mm-hmm. which in itself is somewhat unusual, right? When you think about minimalism, like in your house or something like that, it's like something you do over the weekend, you yeah. know? <laughs> like, yeah, you, you, you take everything out of your closet or whatever. Uh, and then you just put back in the stuff that, that you really need or something and then you're done. But I have this, this extra element, take everything out and then spend the month with the empty closet, <laughs> you know, before you put the things back in. And really why that seemed necessary is that what I heard time and again from readers is they had fallen out of touch with what's important to them, what they want to do with their time, especially their time outside of work. And Mm -hmm. until they had that answer, it was really hard to have lasting change. People have been constantly telling me about the degree to which they had underestimated how they were using these behaviors as an escape. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have to face hard emotions. They didn't have to face hard questions about themselves in their lives. They didn't have to face uncomfortable sensations like, uh, boredom or maybe disappointment in how certain ways you're behaving or what's going on in your life or just facing bad luck that's just annoying and hard mm-hmm. that when you escape, it's an escape from all of that. And, and so it's, it's scary to confront it yeah. without the escape. But once you do, then you can say, well, what do I want to do instead? What's my path out of here? And once you, once you have that locked in and then you say, okay, well, how am I going to use tech to help support this really powerful vision of what I really want? Mm-hmm. Those are changes that really last. If you instead just say, man, I'm on Instagram too much. Look at the screen time report. Right. That seems bad. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe I'll try to check Instagram uh, less often. Not going to work. Yeah. You know, like, you give it a few days, you'll be back to doing it again. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I wrote this post on my blog uh, where I linked that piece that you mentioned about analog social media, uh, and which, which I really appreciated because I said, you know, it's interesting. Like, the most valuable things that have come from Facebook – are the people that I have met in person after connecting with them on Facebook. Uh, like, you know, one of my best friends who, who's, you know, a uh, wedding I was the best man in. Like we reconnected 20 years after we graduated from high school because of Facebook. But I wouldn't say it's Facebook that led to, you know, me being the best man at his wedding. It's because we spent countless hours together in person. Yeah. Well, the day that we're talking about this, just a few hours ago, actually, I posted uh, an article called Blurring the Offline and the Online. And mm-hmm. it's about this really interesting software uh, service called Mighty Networks. And what it, what it allows you to do is if you have some sort of community, maybe you're an author or something like this or, or, or whatever, it allows you to, to start your own social network. And like mm-hmm. a, it sort of acts like a Facebook group in some sense. Like people can post things on their topics and you can have you know virtual meetings and this and that on it. But it has this feature, and this is what I was writing about, that, that I think is very powerful, which is because these are smaller networks. Typically, people pay to be involved. There's typically some strong bonds between why the people in this network, it has a feature where you say, uh, show me who's nearby. Mm. Right. And it says, okay, in this network, you know, here are people who live in your same city. Or if you're traveling, you say, show me who's nearby right now. Like I'm visiting Chicago for the weekend. It's like, you know, Mm. you're this network that's really important to you. Yeah. Here's 30 people who live in Chicago. They can contact them and say, let's go do something. Let's go get coffee. Let's go do this. And I thought that's such a, that's such a powerful, uh, such a powerful idea, and I, I love that. And it, it, this this wouldn't work on one of these mass market platforms where you have a billion mm-hmm. users. I mean, yeah. Do you think of anything more scary that like, everyone on Twitter can find out where you are? And <laughs> but but it, you know, typically these networks are much smaller. Like the one I wrote about, it was uh, a network, uh, mighty a mighty networks particular network that was focused on women business leaders, a couple thousand mm-hmm. of them. Uh, really powerful network for the people in it. And they yeah. use this all the time. Like, oh, I'm visiting this city. I want to find some of these other people that I've been discussing these things with. And mm-hmm. and to me, 
that's a powerful use of the social internet, right? Because what it's doing is taking yeah. things that are important to you and, and giving them a boost. It's accelerating it. And, and where we get uh-huh. in trouble is where instead of using tech to, to inject extra energy into things mm-hmm. that are really meaningful, we use it to escape from or divert from them. And that's what happens when you instead just mindlessly scroll, looking for the little emotional hits. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. 
Okay, one, I'm going to go get that and build. And it sounds like that would be one great way for me not only to connect with our listeners, but for them to connect with each other. You should. Gretchen Rubin has her network on it. Okay. And 70,000 70, members. Okay. Uh, and well, she uses Mighty Networks. I just found out about that today. So anybody who's for listening and wants to be part of this, send us an email at our contact form because <laughs> um, that we are going to do no matter what. I mean, and we're having a conference in April, which I have alluded to on the air. And part of the reason I wanted to do a conference was because I thought, you know, like the see getting to see 400 of my listeners in person, it, like that trumps a million downloads on one episode any day to me. And not only that, we're banning all smartphones, laptops, and social media from the conference. I love it. So, um, wow, this is, I, I love this. This is like, this is why, like, to me, that was worth <laughs> the price of admission right there. Uh, well, let's do this. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think has been really interesting to, to watch outside of sort of these positive, you know, changes in people's personal lives is I feel like every couple of weeks I see a, yet another blog post from you about yet another person who is either famous or like, you know, an athlete or, or somebody amazing who accomplishes something that is like just the elite of the elite, like the Bryce Harper 40, $430 million contract. And I feel like you see those, I keep seeing those over and over again from you. And so I, I thought what would be interesting is to start exploring this link between elite level performance and people who don't use social media, because it seems very clear that there is one. Well, I think there's a really clear connection between uh, cognitive. I, I, I sometimes think of it as cognitive athletics. Mm -hmm. So those who take very seriously their cognitive conditioning and production and success in a lot of fields. So certainly in fields like sports or chess uh, or music, it turns out there's a, a huge benefit to having really good cognitive fitness uh, in sports, because obviously performance is really based on focus, but in music, it turns out it's actually the concentration you're able to muster during practice that mm -hmm. makes the difference at the elite level. So if you're an elite level, let's say cello player, what matters is uh, how intense you can be um, when you practice. This is starting to, to pervade over into the world of knowledge work for sure, because the the main asset there is human brains are producing value. And mm -hmm. something that's not widely known is that in certain professions like uh, hedge fund managers, where massive amounts of money are on the line and it all comes down to the cognitive production of a small number of people and where a loss of focus can be a $100 million mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, they do this. They have coaches. They train. I mean, yeah. if you, if you want to learn more about this, you should listen to uh, Tim Ferriss's recent interview with Josh Whiteskin, okay. uh, who used to be you know, the, the, the kid from Searching for Bobby Fischer, mm -hmm. um, used to be a, a chess champion and then became a uh, Thai push hands. So martial arts world champion and is now becoming a sort of an expert level foil surfer. He's, he's an expert at doing hard things with his body and mind. Hmm. He coaches these financial whizzes and he talks a little bit about it, right? So this is this, this, it's starting to happen. Um, I talk a non-trivial amount, for example, with professional uh, basketball teams mm -hmm. about exactly these issues. It makes wow. a big difference. Uh, you know, the players focus because in, in the NBA in particular, the players, the professional players are much younger than mm -hmm. in other sports because yeah. you, you come into it so young uh, and it matters that epsilon. If you're 10% more focused, that could be a 10% difference in games one, which is the difference mm -hmm. between the playoffs or not. I mean, it makes a big difference. Um, yeah. And so this is a connection I think is vitally important that in almost any type of cognitively demanding work, cog your cognitive conditioning is like your physical conditioning if you're you know a, an athlete it's mm -hmm. really important which is why i'm always so uh 
a little bit chagrined when I hear these arguments that are about, you know, well, think about all these ancillary benefits. If you're sort of crushing it on social media, uh, you're kind of, you're, you're out there and you're content producing and you're meeting people and you're making all these connections and you might get this opportunity, meet that opportunity. All of that in almost any of these instances is just going to be paled if you are just a, a cognitive star. You're just producing. Yeah. You're just great. I mean, there's very little, there's very little replacement. It's a superstar economy. There's very little replacement for just being excellent at things. And mm. that requires cognitive control. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, like every now and then I'll, I'll peek at Twitter and I recently found a guest on Twitter um, who, who we just published an, an episode with. It was things like that. But I also noticed, like, if you looked at my rescue time and see how much time I spent on Twitter in the last month, it would probably be like 20 minutes, if that. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I think I told you, like, I had my own personal experience with this over the month of June um, where – you know, I, I was like, okay, month of June, I'm off of Facebook, and we ended up raising a seed investment from Pod Fund, and I was like, okay, you know what? Like, <laughs> that was enough for me to be like, wait a minute, that may be the biggest thing I've accomplished to date outside of finishing two books. Um, I think maybe it's time for like a 90 day or permanent quitting of these things, and I, I keep, I can't help but wonder what would happen if I just stopped for a whole year. Uh, and it's funny because the only thing I put on Facebook, uh, which I do want to ask you about this because. Um, I, I remember, you know, the, the venture fund actually wrote a blog post about it in which they included us. And I was like, okay, I probably should share this. Like somebody, you know, they might not be happy if I just was like, you know, ignoring this completely. Uh, but it made me think of something that Ryan Holiday has said to me about uh, his whole writing process. He said that he never talks about anything until he's finished with it. Like the only thing you ever see from Ryan Holiday on social media are, hey, here's the manuscript of my latest book that I submitted. It's coming out in September. And so I wonder one about that. And two, uh, the other thing is I found myself slipping back into it um, right after that 30 day period. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm actually here way more than I want to be. So how do you prevent that? Well, yeah, I mean, and, and that's uh, that's part of the reason why I get I get excited about these alternative what I call long tail social media networks where mm-hmm. uh, like Mighty Networks offers is because they don't have the same incentives to try to engineer the overuse. Yeah. So we, we, we often underestimate the degree to which the reason we keep coming back to Twitter and Facebook is not because we're getting this linear return on investment in terms of connections or publicity. It's because it's engineered to keep us in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it, you're logging in, you're doing your hours at the virtual data factory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like you're putting your time card at the Facebook front office. Like, okay, I'm gonna, I, my shift is starting um, because I, I, I know you need your quarterly earnings to be good this this year, so it's this quarter. So mm-hmm. let, me, let me get in my three hour shift this afternoon. Um, that's why we're going back. It's, it's you know it's incredibly exploitative, uh-huh. uh, and 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 so I mean a lot of people in your situation just professionalize it. Like either they do it or they have someone to do it. It's not on their phone. It's they they publish, they share their whatever their 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 episodes and their blog articles, and mm-hmm. it's often automated or there's someone who does it for them or. Uh, I can't tell you how many really well-known personalities I've talked to who share stuff on Twitter who have no idea what people are saying on Twitter. <laughs> they, don't, they don't see – they've never seen – they have no idea what – I don't know if I have the terminology right, but mentions, right? They have no idea what – they don't see – they don't read anything that people are saying to them. They don't read other people's Twitter. They yeah. go on there and they announce. They're like, here's my next episode. Here's my next whatever. Mm-hmm. And they, they get that little epsilon improvement from it. That's incredibly common. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, I often say that to people. It's like, well, if, if you need to use social media professionally, use it like a professional. Right. You know, don't let that be the excuse to drag you into your long shifts at the data factory. Uh, it's yeah. okay. I'm going to share my things. Great. I have a, 
whatever, a plugin setup that does that, or I go on on my desktop computer, you know, right after yeah. I press publish here, I go on the tweet deck and schedule XYZ. I, I don't interact on it. I don't use it. And most important, you don't use it as a source of entertainment uh, or distraction, right? right? Yeah. And, and, and then it's just a tool. You know, it's like, okay, I got to mail out the press release. Yeah. And that's more and more high-level professionals, uh, even professionals that have huge followers on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised how many of them have no idea what's going on on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, that, that that seems healthy to me. And it's funny, like I said, I think the one thing that I've found that ever came from Twitter is like, you know, I'll go peruse it every now and then just to see who's mentioned me. And sometimes I've connected with people who've ended up becoming podcast guests, but like I don't spend, I mean, I, I can't tell you how, how little time I'm, it's so minimal these days. And I'm just like, okay, what is, and it's kind of like that whole, what is the point of this exactly? I'm not sure I'm benefiting from this in any way at all. Um, yeah. But it, yeah. I think that to me, you know, you brought up basketball players and one thing I wonder, well, well, too, I mean, so we're talking about Facebook in particular. I mean, a lot of, even since you and I last spoke, there's been a lot of craziness around Facebook's, you know, Chris Hughes article in the New York times suggesting that they break up Facebook. Uh, they're just, you know, and, and then you look at sort of elections and I wonder, like, do you think that, um, like clearly the impact on society has been very, very in, in a lot of ways detrimental. And yet like they've built this beast apparently that's out of their control at this point. Is there any coming right. back from this? Well, so th- there's a couple things going on there. And, and you know, one thing that's been a, a bit of a source of frustration for me after I've been so deep on this topic is that there's, there's two categories of issues that people are having with, let's say the, the major social media platforms. Um, so the, the, the one collection of the type of things that let's say, uh, like Chris Hughes would write about, which is what I, I sometimes call the, the techno legal geek issues, mm-hmm. which are things like data privacy, um, uh, the election manipulation, um, uh, content moderation, you know, like what, what's the right policy for Twitter to ban someone, you know, the, these type of issues, right? That gets maybe 99% of the press. Um, the other category of issues are the health and well-being issues, mm-hmm. which is individuals saying, I'm using these things more than I know is useful or healthy. And because of that, it is reducing the quality of my life. Yeah. Uh, when I'm on the road, that's what everyone talks about. Uh-huh. Right? When I'm talking to individuals, this is the thing. This is the huge negative impact in our society is I, as a person, am less happy and falling short of my potential and, and feeling existential crisisism and, and endlessly anxious because I'm, I'm looking at this glowing screen way, mu- way much, way more than I should. Mm-hmm. And it's not just that what I'm looking at it, it's making me unhappy. It's that it's also keeping me away from the things I need to do to actually build a much more sustainable, satisfying life. That's a huge problem. Yeah. Uh, but we don't hear about it. The problem we hear about instead is, well, you know, we're going to do end to end encryption mm-hmm. to try to make sure, or we're going to, we're going to try to legislate for, uh, we're going to legislate for data portability or like Chris Hughes thing, right. um, which, which, you know, I have some fundamental issues with that, which, which, uh, <laughs> which, which are maybe a little bit of a tangent. That's fine. And I'm, <laughs> I, I mean, well, the thing with Chris Hughes is, uh, so he says we've got to break these things up. And if you read his, his large, his piece for the New York times, uh, he uses the standard, the standard oil, the big oil analogy, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have to, you, you, we had to break up the big oil monopoly because petroleum was vital to the functioning of our society. And if you consolidate all the control in the one company, then it can be, you know, manipulated. It's bad for, for the social well-being. 
that's probably the wrong analogy for social media because it's not vital right. to the function of our society or our economy. It's actually quite dispensable for most people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've made, this has been quite clear to me in my work. If, if you go up to someone and say, look, I want you to leave Facebook for six months. And mm-hmm. like, all right, they don't care. It doesn't change their life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you go up to someone and say, I don't want you to use petroleum for six months. Uh, okay. Then it's, <laughs> that would be more it's going to be, yes. be substantial, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I've, I've thought the better analogy is big tobacco. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, so how do we how do we face big tobaccos? Well, this is unhealthy for people. Yeah, we, we can't legislate cigarettes into being healthier. Right. But what we can do is try to change our culture so that people don't smoke two packs a day. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, because it's it's not something that we have to do. It's something that we do that's not necessarily that healthy for us. Uh, so I think that's probably the, the better analogy. But but to go back to the split between health and well-being versus the, the, the techno legal geek issues is I'm increasingly convinced that this is exactly the PR strategy that the social media companies wanted to deploy. Uh, Because if you look back to 2016, this was a bad time for Facebook in particular because they had these defectors like Sean Parker who were saying, we engineer these things to hack your brain. We engineer these things to be addictive. We engineer these things so that you'll use them much more than you want to. And that was a devastating message for Facebook because there's no way that they can fix that issue without hurting their bottom line. And as soon as, uh, say, Cambridge Analytica happened, Facebook pivoted hard in their response to say, yes, this is what we want to talk about, privacy and end-to-end encryption and content moderation, because these are all things that, yeah, they can work on and they can fix without hurting their bottom line. And so it's, it's been a bit of a source of frustration to me is that um, the, the, the media is, is very fixated on those issues because they're interesting, they're very technical. Uh, they reward expertise. You, there's legislative fixes, which in, in where I live in DC are very interesting to think about, but it's not what people's complaints are. I mean, when I was on the book tour for, for digital minimalism, no one ever raised their hand that said, the, the real problem here is that I don't have end to end encryption. Right. <laughs> like Facebook data and I worry about my privacy or whatever. It's yeah. always, I'm not paying attention to my kids, uh-huh. you know, at home and it's, it's, I'm despairing about it. So not, not to go on a, a, a longer, um, rant about it, but I've actually been hit quite a few times in the national media recently. Like, well, why aren't you talking about big legislative fixes and fines and breaking up whatever? And, 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 you know, my response is because that you're, you're, you're looking at the wrong forest fire. Hmm. And I think that's what they want us to think about. (laughs) Let's talk privacy, not privation, Uh because privacy, we can do something about privation. Your, uh, your company's revenues are going to plummet. Yeah. So one thing, you and I had an email exchange right after I told you about the seed investment where you had said you'd have a friend who, you know, is, is fairly popular, started a podcast. And, and you said, do you think you need a, uh, you know, uh, social media to grow a podcast? And I kind of wanted, I pushed it back. I was like, well, I think I'd like to ask you that question, given that you've built a popular blog uh, without any of this stuff. And so I, I remember very distinctly one story and I ended up writing a, a blog post about it is, you know, titled, um, you know, <clears throat> the hidden dangers of confusing attention with accomplishment. Uh, and it was based on this interaction I had with somebody who came to see my apartment who had aspirations of being a writer. And 
what I, I noticed was that she had a wildly popular Instagram feed, like one that was way more popular than mine. Uh, you know, hundreds of likes every day, you know, lengthy comments. And I, I just I kind of thought I'm like, this is particularly the kind of attention that is the most harmful. Uh, so th- I, I guess the, the question for me, because I, this is one you know piece of pushback that I've definitely heard from a lot of like early sort of content creators, like, well, how do people find out about me? And yet you proceed to that world in which craft was so important. Uh, so, so I wonder, how do you think about that? Like if you're, you know, looking at somebody and say, okay, you're going to grow this project from the ground up, whether it's a podcast. And I can tell you that our podcast didn't grow because of social media, uh, because we're terrible at it. Yeah. Well, it, or, uh, as I've experienced, it might've grown because of social media, but not your social media, Yeah. which, which is often something that people get wrong is yeah, social media does make it easy for people to spread the word about things. Mm-hmm. Um, but that has very little to do with you spreading the word about yourself. It's okay. If you're producing something that's really good, social media might be one of the ways mm-hmm. in which, you know, people who like what you're doing, spread the word about what you're doing with other people. Yeah. Now, whether or not you on your personal account had posted about it, I mean, that only goes so far. Mm-hmm. So the same friend who was really worried about his podcast growing without social media, he's also a performer and he had admitted to me before that, um, every big, break he's gotten none of it has come from social media every single one of it has come from this person saw me perform and thought i was good Mm. Uh, and he was also talking about the particular world of performance where he is is that it's it's sort of conventional wisdom that you have to tweet all the time i have a show coming up tickets are available here's when it is blah 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 blah. and the general sense is that was uh, for all but the really biggest people was not very effective Mm. but people would come you know oh i didn't know you had a show Mm. (laughs) like wait a second i just tweeted about a hundred times and we we overestimate the importance of us talking about our work mm-hmm. on our channels versus people talking about our work on their channels. Wow. The latter is where you get the huge blow up from social media. Yeah. Um, and, and the former, you know, there, there's this interesting, I wrote an article not too long ago about an op-ed that uh, Mark Harmon, I think his name is a, a novelist, British novelist wrote mm-hmm. the a curious incident of the dog in the night among some other really well-known novels. And I might be messing up his name, but I think that's right. And he wrote an op-ed for the financial times about why he quit Twitter. And what I thought was interesting about it is he said, look, there are all these good things about Twitter that I like. And he listed a bunch of things. Uh, I met these people. I like being involved in this particular cause. I mean, he, he listed all these things. Maybe it, it helps connect him to his audience. Um, but what he said the big problem was is that it felt like his, his terminology, and I'm paraphrasing, is that each tweet was like a, a steam whistle, right? You're, you're trying to catch attention of people. But by doing so, you're bleeding out all this steam uh, and then you'd no longer have enough left to get up that sort of the boiler going that allows you to actually produce something worthwhile. Yeah. And so he felt as if the energy he needed to produce a novel, mm-hmm. you know, that was good and was lasting, was getting bled out with one steam whistle tweet at a time. Wow. And and that was the the bigger issue that outweighed everything else. The novelist Neil Stevenson talks about the same thing with his famous essay, you know, why I'm a bad correspondent. Yeah. He's like, what do I want? Do I want to leave a novel? This can be read by a lot of people and have a long legacy, or do I want from that same time, like a collection of emails and tweets with one-on-one with various individuals Mm -hmm. that is going to be much less valuable uh, to the world or or to himself? And he says, I want the novel, so don't write me. (laughs) Uh, And and so, you know, to me, that's interesting. And that's what I've done. I've just, you know, I just try to produce really good things. Uh Um, And I I know it's talked about a lot on social media. Mm -hmm. And so it's ironic because it's usually (laughs) stuff that's anti-social media. But I can't imagine that it would make a big difference if, if you had a given all that chatter. If also, you know, people know 
I wrote the book. Uh How much is it going to help for me to tweet? I wrote this book (laughs) once a week for a while. (laughs) Yeah. At at some point, right? I mean, it's be so good. They can't ignore you to the, you know, Uh an earlier book uh, and good things will come. Well, it's funny you say that because, um, you know, like at, at my temporary like login back into Facebook, we had a, a listener who was a new listener and she said, you know, I've listened to tons of episodes. I tell everybody I know about the show. And then the next message was, like, I guess nobody checks the Facebook here. And I replied back and I say, well, given that you've heard the show, you've probably heard our conversations with Cal Newport. So that would explain why we very rarely respond to anything here. Uh, yeah. And she kind of appreciated that. I was like, yeah, we just don't because it's it's becoming less. And, and the other thing is, it's like you said, the impact was so marginal in terms of, of moving the needle. We're like, why? This is pointless. Like, I would rather just produce content because that ultimately is what I do that people would actually miss if I stopped doing it. Because um, I, I remember writer Carol in, in Bullet Journal, he had this sort of frame for how he filtered you know, to-do lists like, is this vital? Is this necessary? And what would happen if I didn't do this? And every time I ran using social media through those three questions, I was like, well, it's not vital. It's not necessary. And nothing will happen if I don't do it. <laughs> was the, yes. you know, the conclusion I came to every time. Yeah. Um, Except for a lot of people, what does happen, and, and, and I learned this more after the book came out, yeah. but for a lot of people, what does happen, not content creators, but just, you know, average people, um, is that it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And that was an interesting surprise that, the extent to which people have used uh, these networks as escapes, as I talked about before, was much greater than they realized. And for a lot of people, when they step away from it, facing the existential void of what do I do now mm-hmm. and what do I do with all these thoughts yeah. and what do I do with all these feelings uh, is really terrifying for people. Yeah. And it, it's something not to be taken you know, lightly. You have to essentially, you know, you see that it's like Nietzsche, right? You, you see that abyss. Um, and you don't want to stare down into it too long. Uh-huh. It's like, okay, I got it. I got to fill this back in with something else. Oh, I redecorated and, my whole apartment because of that. Like I, yeah. I went and got the you know TV installed on the wall. I got new furniture from Ikea. I replaced the knobs on the like, you know, drawers in my apartment. It was just, yeah. I was like, okay, you know what? Like I need something. So a home improvement project was the very first thing. A lot of people who, who went through my declutter challenge got it, got fit. Yeah. That was, it was interesting. Like that was because when they had to stare into the abyss, like, okay, what do I really, what matters, what I need to do, where am I unhappy? Right. A lot of the place where they're unhappy is I'm eating poorly, I'm drinking too much, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sleeping enough. And so they got after it, you know? Wow. Like, it's interesting that the things that changed, how much of that book ended up not being about technology, mm-hmm. at least in its implementation. Yeah. Is, you know, you think it's going to be, yeah, I'm going to change my notifications mm-hmm. <laughs> so, on my iPhone. And then, and then you look up 15 days later and what you're doing is you're lifting weights at a CrossFit box and you know, <laughs> drinking athletic greens or whatever, mm-hmm. um, because it's the technology is in the way of everything else. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's one, one piece of this I wanted to come back to. You know, I think I'd mentioned it to you earlier about Ryan Holiday mentioning the fact that he never talks about anything until it's finished. And you know, I, I, I remember I wrote this piece and I ironically put it on Facebook and it basically was titled, Nobody Gives a Shit What You're Going to Start. Show me what you've finished. <laughs> uh and I realized like all day long, like you literally see people just announcing all the things they're going to start for things they haven't done yet. And, and yeah. they get congratulated for it. I remember Ryan told me, he said, you're being congratulated for this thing that you haven't even fucking done yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just wonder what your view is on all that. Yeah. I mean, artist ship, real artist ship, right? That's the yeah. whole, that, that's the whole mindset, right? Mm -hmm. uh, until you ship something doesn't count. Like what, yeah. what matters is shipping. What did I ship? What did I produce? Okay. How do I mm -hmm. make the next thing better? It's probably going to take a few things until it gets uh, gets pretty good in the first place. Yeah. Um, and that's that's an absolute it's a it's an absolute truism, right? I mean, it's produce things that are good, and, and that's everything. Like the, the marketplace of attention and opportunities is straightforward. I mean, it's difficult, <laughs> but it's really straightforward. I mean, what it rewards is things that are good, mm -hmm. and it's pretty ruthlessly objective about it. So, yeah. like the good news is, like, you produce something good. Um, interesting opportunities and rewards will come from it. You know, the bad news is if you don't, there's no amount of you sort of 
advanced social media presence or branding or anything else mm-hmm. that can replicate as far yeah. as the market of, of sort of reward and opportunities is, uh, you know, as, as far as it's concerned. And yeah. so I've, I've had that, that mindset has been instilled in me from the beginning is this sort of put up or shut up type thing. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, Ryan's great about it. Ryan, Ryan does the work. Ryan writes like a madman. I mean, <laughs> he really does. I mean, I feel like every time I finish reading one of his books, the next one is in the mail. Cause I mean, we're both at the same publisher and like, I'll finish one in the galley for the next one shows up. It's like, wait a minute. Didn't he just finish the one that I finished reading? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm with you guys now too. I'm also oh, now yeah. a, a, a portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Ryan and I have the same editor yeah. now. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it, he puts up, right? Yep. You know, put out the books. Now, the only thing that's different, let's say, between Ryan and I is that, uh, you know, typically his books are about something that is ancient. Mm-hmm. So, so like the work he needs to do to get ready to write his book is usually, you know, reading the ancients. Right. Um, whereas I often there's often some. Uh, so his ideas are as old as time. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm often trying to work out new ideas. So uh, I don't I don't tell people I'm writing a book, yeah. but I talk a lot about the ideas uh-huh. that might be in the book. And that's how I hone the, that's how I hone the saw. Like it's not unusual for me. And this is something else I think uh, people get wrong about book writing. Mm-hmm. It's not unusual for me to spend years talking about ideas that might go into a particular book. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in essays, I do a lot in speeches or when I work with executives in interviews, a lot of the interviews I was doing for digital minimalism, I was using as a test platform for testing out some ideas for the next book. And it can take, you know, it's just years of talking and thinking, getting feedback, talking yeah. and thinking and getting feedback. Um, you know, it's not so easy just to come up with, I think people often simplify, oh, well, I'll just come up with an idea. Uh, <laughs> so I've learned from... So it's, hey, it, it takes me a long time to get my proposals ready. Well, well. It's funny because I'm the weirdo who didn't have to go through any of that uh, the first time, like, you know, I got my offer without a proposal, which people are like, how the hell did that happen? Uh, but that's, how, that's common for first books, though, because yeah. it's often there's something you had already done right. that like, okay, specifically like we want to make that, but, but going forward, it's very common it's challenging, right? that, to go from that oh, it's, to it's your torture. Like, Wait yeah. a minute. I'm like, I've spent nine months on this. How like, I'm, you know, I thought that oh, would be, not, wait, nine wait. months is not long. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I, I, spent, I spent at least that on, on the digital minimalism proposal. <laughs> if that makes you feel better. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good to know. Uh, I feel a lot better knowing that. Uh, yeah, so so there's there's a couple of other things that um that you know I wanted to to come back to here. Um, you know, the there's also I think you know this. You mentioned there's like you know cognitive fitness, and and I I wonder how do you train that? Um, and when you this was you know a question about the NBA athletes that we didn't get to, uh, and that was I think that one of the things that has been really interesting to look at is so many of the people like you said are so young who are coming into the game and most of them have grown up with this stuff right like you look at LeBron's Instagram feed he's posting stuff all the time uh, yeah and so you know what has that been like when you go and talk to them about this I mean LeBron clearly cares about performance yeah well I think LeBron has a team yeah. Uh, he has a team that does okay. <laughs> that does the social media, but there, in, like in the NBA, there's this really clever study, and not to make too much out of one study, mm-hmm. but these economists did a pretty clever study where they said, uh, "Well, we can look at Twitter activity for NBA players, and we can we can look at Twitter activity the night before a game, yeah. and then we can see if they won the game, and we can also look at the performance of the individual player." And you know, the study had a pretty clear connection. That the more someone was use a player was using Twitter uh, the night before, the lower their performance. You know, the next day on the court, mm-hmm. and it was that type of study that actually got people um, thinking pretty hard about. It. Yeah, you know, I, it's I've been talking professional athletes. It's interesting. So this is this idea is definitely starting to spread um, in basketball 
Interestingly, in baseball, it's not as big of a deal because A, the game is requires just hours and hours uh, of being on the field and in dugouts where there's no like you know technology allowed. Mm-hmm. So actually, baseball players spend like huge swaths of their day yeah. <laughs> in this sort of calm, ready, focused type mindset because the games are long. There's there's no technology. Also, they're older mm-hmm. because they go through a really long minor league process, and so by the time they make it into the majors, they're they're uh, they're much older. Uh, it's less of a superstar culture too. Um, you know, so anyways, that's a, that's an interesting aside, but I think it's the new frontier. Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of elements to go into it. And, and so, um, one, uh, health and diet play a big, a big issue. Mm-hmm. So like what you're eating, sleeping, your, your physical fitness plays a big role, but we haven't really made that connection before Two, the type of activities you do makes a big difference. So if you give yourself a lot of quick hit distraction, it just weakens, the, the concentration muscles. If on the other hand, you, you do lots of long form, high concentration type mental activities, uh, it, it strengthened those muscles. Mm-hmm. And three of the big place, and this is, this really is more tied to the book I'm working on now is, um, how you structure work. Yeah. And so, you know, not to get too much into it, but, but the way we structure, and I talked about this briefly last time, but mm-hmm. you know, we structure work now and knowledge work based on having these ongoing unstructured conversations, mm-hmm. which are convenient and flexible, but require constant constant yep. network switching yeah look at that look at this jump back to this look at that look at this right. it also vastly increases the number of things that are on everyone's plate because it turns out if you remove the friction in terms of energy and social capital and what mm. it takes for me to ask you to do something i'm going to ask you to do a lot of things uh <laughs> and then you're going to ask someone else to do a lot of things because you have to make up for that attention that's the tragedy of the commons and you look up right. and everyone's doing 5x more work than they were 20 years ago and they yeah. just and they can't it makes them miserable um so that's interesting too so so i think it's a huge I think it's, it's, it's a huge topic and it's the next frontier. I mean, cognitive performance is at the core of so much of our economy mm-hmm. and we barely think about it. Mm. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah, cause I remember when we had that conversation and I went and transcribed it and I replied back to you. I said, you know, like, I really think that you would be better suited to start a company to solve this problem than write another book. It would make you a lot richer. Uh, because I, I thought I was like, if you can solve this problem using technology, it would be like a multi-billion dollar company because I, I really, and you know, the closest thing, I don't know, you know, what you use these days for your writing, but I use Notion. Um, which, you know, they've basically positioned as the all-in-one workspace. And what is amazing is that they thought through all of this stuff. Like they, you know, the, the interface disappears the moment you stop typing. So it's distraction free. Um, you can do everything that you can do in like a dozen different apps. And yeah, you can have notifications, you can collaborate with other people, but it's very rarely the kind of thing that you feel interrupted by. And uh, I mean, they've done so well, apparently, that when they moved to an office, they didn't update their Google Maps on purpose because they were afraid that investors would start coming and knocking on their doors. Yeah. Oh, it's huge. And I mean, I've, I've talked with quite a few companies at this point mm-hmm. that have the same mindset of um, if we, because it, it's, it's a hundred million people mm-hmm. and it's a trillion dollars of GDP, yeah. right? I mean, if you can unlock this, this productivity that's just being squashed because we're not recognizing the way the brain works, it's, it's one of the biggest sort of moonshot opportunities out there. Mm-hmm. The complicated thing is, I don't know. I don't know if you can solve it just with technology. Yeah. Because the problem is, what's the underlying workflow that you use? How is it that you identify, assign, execute, and review tasks? Right. And 
If you don't replace that with something else, I mean, I can put people in isolation chambers with this beautiful software that makes it impossible to communicate and people are going to be sending carrier pigeons through the windows (laughs) or knocking holes in the wall. Because if that's the only way we know how to coordinate, we have this ongoing ad hoc unstructured conversation. If you take that away, work grinds to a halt. And so that's why I'm still, uh, so I'm with you on that. I I mean, I think there's products that could do this. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's probably training. I mean, I probably should there probably needs to be some sort of academy I launch along with that book so you can immediately take action. Right. But there also has to be uh, a culture shift as well. Yeah. And and like, that's a lot of what I've been like today, even I've been working this last few months on, on I've been going through all of the research. Here is how we currently work and what is wrong mm-hmm. with it. And when you really see it laid out carefully, like I'm trying to do, it's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's like learning. You've been running this factory for a long time and you're also proud and then someone comes in and says, you know, if you turned the lights on, <laughs> people would probably stop dropping things so much and you would probably build these things a lot faster, right? You're like, oh, oh, yeah, if the lights are on, we can see. I mean, we don't have yeah. to just feel around in the dark. I mean, it's really like one of those type of wow. one of those type of light switch type issues. When you really lay it out, here's how we're working. It's yeah. completely arbitrary. And here's the negatives of it. And there's better ways. Well, like it's said, a huge job. If, if you, you know, if that book doesn't, if somebody hasn't built it by the time your book comes out, I'm guessing somebody is going to be very rich if they figure out how to solve this problem. Like it's something that I thought yeah. about based on our last conversation. I was like, this is a problem that I really want to solve. Like I have a buddy who, um, you know, basically helps companies automate business processes using Airtable. And he was telling me that if you go and you look first, he said the biggest problem he runs into is that most people we're talking huge organizations. Most of them don't even know their processes. And he's like, well, I can't yes. automate something for you if you don't know your processes. But yeah. he was amazed. I mean, he showed he built something for us where our production process for the podcast, like the email that you got this morning, that literally requires me to go post the Zencaster link inside of Airtable. Like I didn't write that. I didn't do any of that. It was completely automated. Yeah. Um, then he, he, he basically said, he's like, oh man, he's like, this is taking you 10 hours a week. He said, we can reduce down to about 20 minutes. And now everything is fully automated. And I had shared this part of this conversation with him. I said, Hey, you're actually solving part of this problem by automating all these things that people do manually. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, I learned, I learned about him through you. Mm-hmm. I saw you write about him and he's on my list of people to, <laughs> to bother. Yeah. Um, while, while thinking about the book because of well, exactly let me know that if you point. want an introduction to him, I'm happy to make that happen. Yeah. Cause of exact, exactly that point. And, and like also along those lines. So one of the things I'm doing, for the book, but also just for my own personal sanity is, you know, I'm, I'm finally hiring an assistant. Um, <laughs> and, but, but part of, part of what I'm, I'm looking, both looking forward to and dreading, but I think it's going to be informative for me in the book is step one is figuring out, well, what are all the processes I'm involved yeah. in? Like, and how do you do that? And, and how do you actually list those out? I mean, I think just having managers have to confront the reality of those lists. Mm-hmm could make a big change. It's like when David Allen used to go into these executives uh, in, in the early 2000s. We'd go into these executives, see if these all days, these executives would say, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, you got to help me. And he would say, we're going to put everything down on paper, every obligation, every open loop. And it was it was so terrifying for the executives because the paper would grow and it would grow and it would grow and they'd have five or 600 things written down. Mm-hmm. And it was like they had to confront the, they had to confront the, the, the complete sort of disproportionate um, futility of like the way their work was set up. Here's 500 different things that are on my list. Right. Like that's crazy. And then, and then confronted to what's going on in the software development world, for example, where if you look at extreme programming or the people who really take, you know, uh, agile methodologies really seriously, they think a lot about works in progress. Like, okay, how many things should you be working on at a time? They thought a lot about it. And their answer is like two. Mm-hmm. 
know, like in that world, it's like, yeah, if you want to make the most out of your mind, maybe one, maybe two things at a time. Yeah. Then you finish those and then we figure out what's going to go next. Con- contrast that to David Allen's executives, right. 400 things on a list. Well, you know? And even if you look um, at um, yeah. John Doerr's uh, OKR book, the Measure What Matters book, he actually says like three to five. He said any more than that, you know, uh, for a quarter, he said it's way too much. Yeah. And most people have uh, two orders of magnitude more. Mm-hmm. And in, in part because, right, if it's, it's a tragedy of the commons. If you don't think about it, and just everyone has access to everyone, it takes almost no social capital and no energy to ask someone to do something, and it makes your life slightly easier. What's going to happen? You're going to have three to four hundred things, yeah. you know, on your list. Everyone, well, you know, Srini, can you do this? What about that? And can you do this? And this department wants you, and HR is like, can you fill out this form? Yeah. And we need you to do a survey. And what about the parking? And and uh, it's it's it from a cognitive perspective, it's just nuts. But uh, it, that's why you're right that someone's probably going to make a lot of money off of this is because that's a huge fact. That's a huge sector of the economy mm-hmm. yeah. that right now is just running in just the, the, the worst type of way. Yeah, well, I remember the, I always remember the Dan Kennedy filter for email, which he shared in a, a seminar uh, called No BS Wealth Attraction. I thought it was the funniest thing. It was obnoxious, but it was also true. He's like, this is how I filter my email. He's like, is this a person who's trying to get me to do something or is this a, trying to, a person who's trying to give me money? And those are like, that's literally how he, he yeah. said he's like filters all communication, uh, which I thought, okay, well, you know, Dan Kennedy's done all right for himself. Maybe there's something to that. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, and nowadays I, I don't, you know, it's like, okay, uh, there's nothing here that I, me responding to this is pointless because all it's going to do is, is be unnecessary and create more communication for me if this person replies. Um, so one of the things uh, that I, I actually wanted to to, to come back to, uh, you know, it, you, it's very rare that we leave our conversations without talking about education and particularly in the wake of, of what's happened between, you know, our conversation in January and now, you know, with the admission scandal and you being at, you know, an Ivy League school, like, what is your view on all of this? Um, what do you think about all this? Well, so like what issues? You mean like the... Uh I mean, like the, admissions issue? Yeah, the fact that we've gotten to the point where we had such a crazy scandal um, for people to achieve things. And yet, you know, on the flip side of this, you and I were talking about, you know, like achievement being sort of this huge thing in society. Yeah, well, I mean, it's yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting what's going on, right? Um, so we have that. We have that pressure. We mm-hmm. we have that pressure where where you know people are willing to go, or at least certain people are willing to go to extreme ends because uh, this seems so important. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, I'm wondering to what degree that represents sort of the peak of our current kind of cultural state of you know existential aimlessness. Mm-hmm. Like what you know what what are we what are the, what are we trying to do? What's important? What's a life well lived? We've sort of just, let's avoid all of those issues. And we can have this sort of professionalized technocratic, like all that we know is like, you know, get good grades, maybe go to the better school, the better. Like if that's all you have as an answer, mm-hmm. you know, like that's all I know. Like, you know, the only thing I know how to help my kids do is like, it's, it's probably good to go to Georgetown versus not. I have no other answers for you. Yeah. Then you get to a place where, you know, you're having the sailing coach do whatever weird <laughs> terribleness you're going to do, right? Um, and, and so to me, that kind of represents something. It, it, it kind of represents something. I think there, there's, there's so much because you, one of the things you get, cause I used to do a lot of work on, on like college admissions, college stress. I wrote a book about this mm-hmm. back when I was a student. I used to be on, on the road. I, I spoke at a lot of colleges about this and have, you know, all the big colleges, you know, Princeton, Dartmouth and Harvard and, Georgetown, like all these places I used to go and talk with the, the admissions officers, 
um, and the mental health experts, yeah. <laughs> because it turns out these are really related. Um, and, and there's this weird, you know, friction in that world, because on one hand, there's this like huge pressure, like this is all that matters. And there's this big pushback, like, well, it doesn't really matter at all. Yeah. And it's weird how these two things are, are pushing together. And, and, and to me, a lot of that comes back from, um, there's no, people don't have an answer to what am I all about? What am I trying to do? And I, so I see that in this, in the small, in the small term, just working with digital minimalism type stuff, yeah. right? That, that turned out to be the key to getting people to, to reform their digital life. What a small thing, but what was the key to getting them to do that? They had no idea what matters, what's a good life, what makes a good life good? What am I trying to do? Mm-hmm. What activities are going to get me there? Yeah. Um, and so I've seen some of the, some of the hysteria surrounding admission. And, you know, going to these colleges and taking on these huge debts, mm-hmm. even though you could stare at the numbers. And, and this is even worse for professional schools, you know, law schools, right? Yeah. In particular, just like I, I'm going to take on or the master's bar, I'm going to take on this debt to get this extra degree. I've, I've no real reason why mm-hmm. and no real promise I'm going to make back that money, yeah. but there's no other answer. You know, that's all we have. Mm-hmm. It's sort of technocratic accomplishment, you know, uh, credentialing. Um, and so I think that's a symptom of something, right? I mean, I, th- I think that's a symptom of we've we, we've sort of, uh, for for better or for worse, and it's both, stripped away a lot of the sort of standard structures by which people, you know, can structure uh, a life well lived. We can't strip it all away. Mm-hmm. It's fine. You can just figure it out on your own, but then people can't. And so what's left? Uh, well, you know, if you're if you're Lori Laughlin, like you're well off, you're like, well, you know, maybe the quality of the college my kids are yeah. going through. Like that's all you have. Um, and so the, if that's all you have, then you'll do what it takes. Mm. Wow. And so I, I, I see that as a symptom. And I got to say, that's one thing I like about Georgetown because it's an old Jesuit university. Once you actually get here, there's a big focus on what they call cura personalis, right. an old Jesuit concept, a uh, whole person. You know, building yourself as a whole person to a better person, building a good life. And we probably need that writ large. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, I think that makes a perfect segue to get to, you know, where I want to wrap this up with. There are two things here that I want to finish with. Uh, one of the things that we didn't get to touch on last time uh, because we were kind of cut short was this whole idea of solitude, which I think, you know, it's it, like the I, I I think for the longest time used to just absolutely fucking dread spending time alone. It was just one of those things. I felt lonely. I felt depressed. Um, and yet it got a lot easier when I quit social media. And that was really surprising to me. Like suddenly I'm like, OK, you know what? Like I don't want to be bothered for like three hours on a Sunday. I want to be alone. I don't want to be in a coffee shop interacting with anybody because this is like time when I get to think to the point where I literally have thought, you know what? Once a month, I want to go to a hotel, check in, leave my phone in my car and just for two days sit there, read and write. Um, so I wonder, you know, what is the role of that? And then this is one thing I, I wish I'd asked earlier in our conversation, but I wanted to ask it anyways. Like, you know, you have nowadays sort of dating apps, right? Which also kind of fall into the category of the things that you're talking about. And I wonder, like, my experience with them has been pretty awful to say the least. Like, I think literally everybody who is on these apps, their like default thing is I like I'm on this and I can't wait to get off of it. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. you know the end game of of how this thing ends. So I wonder how you how you you know, think about those things. Well, so relevant to both of those is this, this idea that whenever there's a, a fundamental human driver activity, something that, that we feel really strongly and is, has been a part of our species for a long time, you have to be really careful if you start monkeying around with it with technology, mm. right? Because if there is a strong drive that has some sort of real evolutionary purpose, it's really powerful, um, it has a, there's a point to it. And so if you start manipulating it with some tool that someone, you know, a, a 22-year-old came up with in some incubator somewhere, uh-huh. 
you might have problems, right? And so both solitude and the dating apps actually touches on that particular principle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with solitude, there's this, we, we have this, this strong uh, drive for boredom, right? Boredom is really uncomfortable. And uh, that means something, right? I mean, we really don't like feeling bored. That means that there is an evolutionary importance to feeling bored. Mm-hmm. Because we don't have strong things that make us feel really uncomfortable unless there's a really good reason to it. So what's the purpose of boredom? Well, it's supposed to uh, help motivate us to actually get over our natural state of energy conservation and actually invest the energy required to do things that in the long term are satisfying and meaningful. Because otherwise, we're, we're most animals try to conserve energy when they can because who knows when you're going to next eat. But humans need to also go out there and you know invent the wheel and build cities. And, and boredom drives us to do it because we want to conserve energy. We're lazy, but we also hate being bored. Um, so if you subvert that powerful human drive with, well, wait a second, I've got this little glowing rectangle and it has all these algorithms behind it and it can it kind of take care of that boredom in a flash. <laughs> right. And so I never actually have to feel bored. I never have to have it drive me to do anything. You feel like, oh, I'm solving this problem, but you're messing with this drive. And what happens is you don't go out and invent the wheel and you don't build cities uh, and you end up much <laughs> impoverished. Just like, oh, I feel hungry. That's a huge yeah. drive. That means I need to go you know, eat. And you're like, well, I have a candy bar. Wow. Well, yeah, in the moment, <laughs> it yeah. handles the hunger, but then you look up a couple of years later and your body's, you know, essentially, you know, an inflamed rack. Wow. Um, same thing with the dating apps, right? I mean, uh, human, that, that, that aspect of human sociality, mm-hmm. the actual sort of the, the forming of monogamous bonds, like obviously is, is crucial to our human history. Yeah. What happens when you, you, you come in with some app where you're swiping things mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, like that completely subverts all of the the drives that we've evolved and of course it's going to mess things up yeah. and people are it's, it's it's going to create a sense of of whatever all sorts of bad senses right because that's not at all that drive is supposed to actually lead us to actually you know through sacrifice and demonstrations build and strengthen a bond with someone within our tribe over time until that strengthens into the the long-term anonymous bond i mean the, we, we're wired to do that in a certain yeah. way um if you subvert that with i like, swipe this direction yeah or <laughs> like i swipe that direction um, and I barely talk to the person, you know, that's, you mess with drives and, and it, and it causes problems. Wow. And so this is maybe the new terrain of the paleo movement or something <laughs> like that. I mean, <laughs> is, is, is like, you know, okay, uh, forget the eating for now. What about the other aspects of our life? Mm. Boredom and connection, yeah. uh, and mating, um, you know, you mess around with those drives at your peril. Just like when we mess around with the food system, we got a giant obesity right. epidemic, um, you know, you mess around with those drives, you know, at, at, at your peril. And so I'm wary of dating yeah. apps. And there's a reason why, like, going out there, being alone, being bored, seeing where that leads you, when you don't have the option of dispelling to boredom with a phone, mm-hmm. where does that lead you? Where it leads you is probably going to be something you should be doing. Yeah. It's funny you say that, uh, particularly with dating apps. We, we, you know, I, I worked with a dating coach who has been a guest here. And one of the things he told me was pretty unanimously across the board in all his clients. He said the guys who have the most problems are the ones who meet the people that they're dating from dating apps. Yep. Uh, which, you know, and that I was like, okay, you know what? I think it's it's time to ditch this shit and like <laughs> be done with it. Because, yeah, I, I kind of thought to myself, I'm like, and to me, I was like, okay, how does a business model work here exactly? Because if you meet somebody and you delete the app, that's it. You're done. Like they lose you as a user. Yeah. Well, that's why like Tinder was doing well, because it's yeah. not really the, you know, it wasn't really their end goal. 
Right. Whereas, oh, I want to, I want to meet someone and not have to use it. There's other things. <laughs> well, that, well, that's, <laughs> that's the driving thing, right? Is I, I've thought about that in terms of Bumble, and I, like, I mean, for yep. lack of someone as crude, I'm like, you're effectively saying, okay, would I sleep with this person every time? Like, I know because I, I've had this conversation with people. I'm like, let's be honest. Like, and anybody swipes right or left, that is literally the filter by which they're making this decision. And yeah. you know, and, and I think that's also what kind of makes it so sort of alluring and addictive. It's like, oh, this is the possibility to mate with somebody. Like it. You it's like yeah. that evolution. It's screwing, it's screwing with one of the more fundamental drives we have as yeah. humans. You screw with it, and is, uh, you know heard the, it that way. if you excuse use of the word, yeah. uh, you know it's you're going to make a lot of money because you're playing just like junk food makes a lot of money. Yeah. People love you know people have to eat. That's a powerful drive, and if you can exploit it with hyper palatable food, uh, people are going to spend a lot of money on it. Uh. Yeah, though, and, and we know evolutionary. Well, what's the right way to do this? Well, you're supposed to be trying to sacrifice and invest non-trivial time on behalf of communities that are important to you to actually sort of build up your social capital and be of worth to these communities. And, and in those investments, then you, you, you come across people in these communities with which you strengthen over time a bond that goes from platonic to romantic. I mean, this has been, we have, you know, uh, age old history on how this typically happens, but if you're instead just playing video games mm-hmm. and then, you know, emerging just the bumble for a while, you know, like that's, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're kind of going against about a hundred thousand years of wiring uh, in terms of how this is supposed to work. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> hopefully you haven't put you know a bunch of dating apps out of business. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm always, I think that that is what always amazes me out of the, our conversations is I always wonder, I'm like, you know, these massive giants who you've been hypercritical of for damn good reason somehow still seem to persist. You know, it's like a billion people. Like mm-hmm. I, I, it, it's amusing to me because I know there are a lot of our listeners who I know because I've connected with them on Facebook, ironically, and I, I still see them on Facebook, you know, even after all of our conversations, um, which I, I think is fascinating that it still persists. Do you think that's yeah. partially because the message just hasn't, you know, uh, penetrated media enough? Like it's a PR issue, like you said? Yeah, I think so. I mean, after after Cambridge Analytica, there was this delete Facebook movement, mm. and there was some massive amount of users, like very non-trivial percent that uh, either canceled their accounts or, or deactivated them or took them off their phone. And most of them returned, mm. which is really depressing. Yeah. And in part, it's because, A, in the end, people actually don't care that much about data privacy. It's just not – it's an abstraction that really doesn't affect their day-to-day. And they, they are faced with the question with, like, well, what else am I supposed to do? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of depressing. But where, where, I'm, seeing, where I'm seeing success is uh, the, the cultural approach I'm taking. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, you, you, you change the culture around these things. And, and uh, you know, the media, I think, is, is coming around to it. I don't know. It's, it's hard. <sighs> things take a long time. Someone sent me the timeline recently for tobacco. I mean, mm-hmm. tobacco usage fell from 45% to 12%, which is great, mm-hmm. but it took 50 years. Wow. Uh, so, and, that, and there was a, quite a lot of active education. So I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I mean, these things are addictive, but they're not like tobacco. Like if I take it out of your life, you're not going to um, – you're not going to have the shakes, you know, like it's not a chemical, yeah. not a chemical uh, addiction. And so the, the, these networks are a lot more dispensable. Um, but literally people just need something else to put in their place. And so we'll see. I mean, I, I'm optimistic. I mean, I can sense the culture shifting. That was the motivation for me writing the book is that for years, no one cared. And now people do care. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good sign. Yeah. Um, and from all walks of life, that's something else that's been very interesting. It's it's not just, you know, a particular sort of well-to-do high-tech class in San Francisco that now wants to go to meditation retreats. Mm-hmm. Um, from all different, let's say, like socioeconomic classes, for example, I hear from people who are very interested, you know, in, in these topics. And so we'll see. Yeah. Um, we'll see. I mean, 
I still predict that I, I can't imagine that we're going to have just a small number of platform monopolies in the 10 years from now. It just, there's not enough reason for it. There's not enough. And this is actually a, a minor tangent, but this is something I've been writing about recently. So I, I had a New Yorker piece on this recently, and I've been writing a blog series on this recently. Um, the the network effect, the value of network effect in social media is really starting to diminish mm. because the the way people use social media now is they get more advanced with it. And, and how they use the social internet in general doesn't reward network effects as much. It, it doesn't matter to me as much anymore if everyone I've ever known is on a particular platform. What do I care about? Are people I want to know on that platform. Mm-hmm. It also doesn't matter to me as much anymore. Uh, you know, is is there a billion different video clips on every possible topic on this platform? What I care about is does this platform have video clips or content on this small number of things I really care about? Yeah. And so I'm I'm seeing the shift in people's consumption. So like I don't need to talk to my mom on Facebook. I'd rather talk to her on the phone. Right. Um, oh, but I'm really into this particular topic and you know like Gretchen Rubin's books and <laughs> and uh, I would love to talk to some ten thousand other people who really like Gretchen Rubin's books. Like that's really valuable to me. Yeah. And so the importance of network effects is diminishing while the importance of a network being interesting is increasing. And I think that is going to subvert the entire justification for why you have to have giant monopolies. And once you don't need giant monopolies, then you can have a huge diverse marketplace Mm -hmm. of different social internet offerings. And once you have this huge marketplace of different offerings, you know, things like engineered addictiveness and these type of things, which are necessary if you need to support a $500 billion company, those go away mm-hmm. when you're Gretchen Rubin and you have 70,000 people on your platform and maybe they pay a dollar a month or whatever to be on it. It's mm-hmm. like, well, she doesn't need to be exploiting you and trying to get you addicted. And uh, one of these other mighty networks I profiled, they, they tell their users, no, no, we don't want you on here more than twice a week. Yeah. If you need to be out there working on your business, like our users aren't on here all the time, but they pay a monthly fee. It's fine. They're not selling ads to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes me optimistic. I just, I, I don't think the mass market model where we have to have everyone on the same network for it to be useful. It just doesn't hold because we already have the internet, which can yeah. connect everyone to anyone, anything. Right. That's there. We're all a part of that. Mm-hmm. So to have a second internet within the internet that everyone's on is just redundant. And so, uh, not to get into my network effect tangent, but, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but no, I, yeah. to me, that's, that's probably the biggest, that's one of the biggest threats, I yeah. think, is, you know, to the major social media platforms is it's becoming less clear that we need major social media platforms. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's funny because you mentioned sort of, you know, these deeper things. And I'd, I'd started writing this piece and I'd meant to send it to you about deep consumption because I started thinking about, okay, what would, how would it be different if I went instead of listening to 10 different podcasts or, for example, reading 10 different blogs, if I took one person and I just basically consumed their entire body of work for a month, um, which was, you know, one of those experiments I'd intended to do, but I never did. And, you know, I'd meant to email it to you and ask you about it. And I wonder what, you know, like, to me, that seems like there would be much more value in that than scattering my attention. Um, you know, even if I am, reading 50 different books, would I be better suited to say, you know what, I'm going to read everything Seth Godin has ever written? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've long thought I, that would be a useful service, mm-hmm. like a search engine where it's like, okay, you're interested in this author. I'll gather all the podcasts. I'll gather all the whatevers and you can, and that's actually a behavior people do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've done that calnewport.com slash I think media. Yeah. I've been trying to consolidate, like here's 50 interviews uh-huh. and here's, 15 videos and here's 20 articles. And so like, if you want to deep dive, you can, but yeah, I think that's very effective. I had lunch not long ago with a philosopher. So an academic philosopher, old school. Um, and he was like, you should really read this book I wrote. Uh, it's really hard. So you're going to have to read this other book first, mm-hmm. which basically is, and it's a hard book to find. I had to get in the Georgetown library. You can't get it on Amazon. 
Uh, it's called understanding the medieval meditative ascent. He's like, you got, it's, he's like, this is hard. You're going to have to, it's going to take you a long time to get through this, but then you're really going to understand what, in this case, is Boethius, a uh, particular, you know, Greek philosopher. Then you can understand my book on him and then you can understand his book. And this will take you like six months, but you'll get a lot out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that's the old school way. You know, it's three books that are each going to take months to read mm-hmm. and a lot of hard thinking, but you're going to come out of it with a deep new insight, which is what intellectuals, that's all they do. Yeah. Um, so, so there's something to that model, I think, versus like, let me get some tweets and yeah, so, no, I mean, I, I literally yeah. thought I was like, okay, who are my favorite interviewers? I'm like, you know what? There's this guy, Sam Jones, who does this amazing podcast called off camera. And I was like, I'm going to just download all of his interviews. Cause he interviews all these amazing celebrities like, you know, Matt Damon. And, all, and I was like, okay, this guy asks amazing questions. And, you know, I was like, okay, I could go through his whole podcast feed and then add another one after that. Um, which like, I realized is a fundamentally different way to consume content. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And read things, long things. Think about that's the other thing this philosopher told me, by the way. He's like, oh, people who study these hard philosophies, the way the books used to be written is that it's supposed to be an equal balance. Huh. Like you read the chapter and then you spend an equal amount of time thinking about huh. it. And then once you finally understand, you move on to the next chapter. Long form thinking. Uh, it's, you know, this was the huge benefit to the written word. One of the huge benefits it gave the uh, human civilization is that it taught us how to do long form thinking mm-hmm. because reading requires long form thinking. If you can do long form thinking, then you can invent calculus and physics. And everything else. Yeah. Until we had reading, we didn't have the training to be able to actually produce the things on which the modern world is built. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's something that you want to you want to sidestep only with some trepidation. Yeah. Uh, reading and thinking about hard things teaches your mind how to think about hard things, and thinking about hard things is how progress is made. Mm-hmm. So, I, I know and you got to get going here. Um, I wanted to ask yeah. you one thing we never, which we never got to, and that is kind of what is your what does your average day look like, and and how do you think about like how do you choose the things that you're going to write about like what is that process for you is it just like what is your entire sort of creative process i guess is really the question um yeah it's 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 pretty focused um i i try to focus what i'm writing on i mean i'm, I'm you know i'm working on a book and so i, I like i'll know this month i'm working on this chapter mm-hmm. Uh, I do a small number of articles outside of it and i try to maximize the quality of the places that i'm writing for um, and then my blog post is a little bit more serendipitous. I just, I, I take an idea that's been bouncing around and then think, okay, that I want to develop. And then I'll put aside a couple hours for it. Um, but you know, most of what I'm spending my time on is pretty static mm. from day to day. Like I'm working on this chapter. It's going to take me a month or I'm working on, you know, if I'm doing like a big New Yorker piece or something, it's going to take a long mm-hmm. time. Like that's what I'm going to be thinking about for right. a while. Uh, and then my blog post give me a little bit more, you know, it in the moment it's scratching. Okay. You know, once a week I'll be like, what's something that's caught my attention. Right. Wow. Very cool. Uh, well, uh, I have one final question uh, for you, which I know you've heard me ask you at least two times at this point. And, uh, you know, I'd be curious to, to you know, see how you answer this, you know, six months later. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Yeah, I guess my... <laughs> I don't know. I, I forgot what I said before, so I don't know if my, my yeah. answer is <laughs> so because uh, I've heard so many changing or not. But but I mean, I'm sure I'm sure probably what I said before is what I what I still think now is that you know you uh, you produce something that's too good to be ignored. Mm. You know, yeah, like that's kind of the whole ball game. Everything else good comes out of that. Mm. Amazing. Well, I, I mean, I think that there's really uh, everybody knows where your books are. They know where your blog is. Is there anything else you want to share with people other than telling them to quit Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, quit Instagram too. Okay. If that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, calnewport.com. You can, you can, uh, you can find out what you need to find out. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. 
While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.